Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time and uh, turn with me to the New Testament book of Colossians. We're actually going to be in about four different books. Uh, So turn to the New Testament. We'll start in Colossians. We'll then make our way to the Gospel of John, followed by the uh, little book of 2 Peter, and then we'll end in 1 Corinthians. If you don't have access to uh, your own Bible, there should be some Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And if you don't have access to either of those, the text should be on the screen. Uh, Always good to bring your Bible and and open it up and follow along. So Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to begin. Uh, Today is part 6 in our sermon series entitled Heaven. And uh, the sermon this morning is going to be Living in Light of Heaven. That is, how are we supposed to live in light of our uh, certain future of heaven for all eternity if we're Christians? What, What difference does it make that heaven is real and that we're going there in our lives here and now? That's where we're heading. I trust that you're uh, in the text. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right into our sermon this morning. So if you will pray with me again. Father, thank you for the wonderful chance to, for these last several weeks now, to look into heaven and to see what it is that you have revealed about the future of those of us who have been born again, who have personally believed this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died in our place, that he lived the perfect life that we could never live, that he died in obedience to you, Father, on the cross, bearing our sins, bearing your wrath against our sins in our place that we deserved, and then rising again, defeating death, defeating sin, and defeating Satan in our place so that we may have new life, that we may have eternal life, both now and forever. And the details of what that will be, both in the intermediate heaven when we go to be in the very presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We anticipate the kingdom of Christ when he comes again. And we anticipate, Father, that you will destroy the old earth and recreate, make new, the new heaven and the new earth. And we will live there with you forever in resurrected, glorified bodies, serving you. What an incredible hope that we have. And yet, Father, we turn now to think just a moment about what you've revealed in the scriptures as to what those truths mean for us today. Father, as we ponder eternity, we recognize that eternity has present implications for how we live our life and for what we're supposed to do. And so now, as we turn and think about living in light of heaven, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might understand better what it looks like for us as your children to live in light of the eternal heaven. We ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people together said, amen. Amen. So I've shared with you a few times before, and I'll share with you again that uh, about a month ago, uh, I had the opportunity to stay behind as my family went to spend uh, time with Shelly's sister and her folks, and uh, I've spoke of this at length, so I'm not going to speak too much on it, but uh, I had basically a week alone. Now, uh, one of the things that I did uh, was kind of, you know, relax and enjoy myself. However, uh, I did have some things that I needed to do, uh, some things that uh, my wife had left me to do, if you want to call it a honeydew list, so to speak, just things that needed to be done while I was, uh, while I was there, while the kids were gone and while my wife was gone. And so... Um, 
I think they, they left maybe on a Friday, and I woke up uh, bright and early for me on a Saturday morning, and I got that list in front of me, and I was motivated. I was ready to, to tackle my, my list and to do the things that were necessary, at least to get a jump on them. And so uh, I got started, and I, I had many things to do. I, I mowed the yard, and I uh, uh, sprayed the weeds because they were getting crazy out of control, so I sprayed the weeds, and um, I, I tended the garden. That was something I needed to do was go and tend the garden to make sure that, you know, nothing grew and got ruined. And so I, I just kind of went down this list, right? And I made it mostly down the list. However, I left a few things to, to do. And uh, the days went on and went by, and I got into my movies and different things, um, weddings that I, were, I was doing that week. And, well, needless to say, there were one or two things that, well, I just forgot. I just kind of, they slipped my mind, forgot to do them. Sorry, honey, again, for, for forgetting to do those things. Um, and uh, so how do you think, when, I, uh, when my wife and my family got home, uh, how do you think that was received? Well, I did some things in light of their return, right, knowing that they would come back, and uh, there was praise for those things, and there was thankfulness. But uh, there was something else, you know, for, for not doing those things. I was like, oh, I forgot. I, I was ashamed. I was, uh, I was saddened that I wasn't able to fully do my list, Right. So let me ask you this question. When my family was gone, do you think that, how did that influence how I spent my time while they were gone? Did did it make any difference knowing that one day they would return? There was a future day that my family was going to come back. Did that have any influence at all over how I spent my week? It did. Uh, Maybe it didn't influence it enough, right? But it did have some influence on how I spent my week. And I think this, this week alone this time, I, want to, I think, illustrates a simple truth that we're going to be exploring here for the rest of our time this morning. And the simple truth is this, is that living in light of a certain future does, should impact how we live in the present. Let me run that by you again, right? Living in light of a certain future, that is a day that's coming and it's certain, should impact how we live in the present. That is, living in light of eternity, of a certain future for those of us who are believers in Christ, should have its impact on how we live our Christian lives here and now. Randy Alcorn, I've used him extensively in this sermon series, and he has a book called Heaven. I would recommend it to you. I'll let you borrow it. It's a wonderful book. And in his book, he he says it this way. He says, the biblical doctrine of heaven is about the future. And we've seen that for the last few weeks, right? The biblical doctrine of heaven is about the future, but it has tremendous benefits here and now. If we grasp it, it will shift our center of gravity and radically change our perspective on life. And so what I want to do this morning is take a look at what the New Testament has to say about living in light of eternity. What difference does it make for those of us who are Christians that we have the hope, uh, the certainty of eternal life? Well, as I look through the New Testament, there were five ways, five ways I think that the Bible tells us about how living in light of eternity should affect our lives today. So if you're taking notes, you can jot down one, two, three, four, five, and we're going to be taking a look at five texts starting at Colossians chapter 3. So if you have your text, go ahead and open there or look on the screen behind me. The first way that living in light of heaven should affect our life today is this. It impacts our desires and our thinking. That is, living in light of heaven should affect what we want, our desires, and what we contemplate about, what our will focuses on. Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2. Paul starts his 
application in the book of Colossians in chapter 3. And he begins by writing this way. He says, Since then, since then you have been raised with Christ. Let your heart, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So Paul begins with the reality for every Christian. He says in verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ. This speaks to the fact that we are spiritually dead. Our old man, our old person who we used to be before we became Christians is now dead. We have been spiritually raised with Christ to new life. He says, since that's true of you, how should that affect what you set your will on, what you desire, what you think about? Well, he tells us, And he uses this phrase and he repeats it. He says, first of all, he says, set your hearts, right? Set your hearts on things above. And then he repeats himself in verse 2, but he changes it slightly. Set your minds on things above. What this means is simply this, that we should both seek heavenly things and that we should orient our will on heavenly priorities, I like the way one commentator puts it. He says of this verse, we must not only seek heaven, but we must also think heaven. So Paul says this. He says, the reality of heaven should affect what we want, what we desire. We should desire to go there, and it should affect our will, what we think about, right? Our our mindset. It should impact our desires and our thinking. And interestingly enough, The tense of the verb here indicates an ongoing effort. So you could translate it this way. Keep on setting your hearts. Keep on setting your mind on things above. Because when we become Christians, this doesn't just happen automatically, right? It's not a one-time thing. Paul says continually, as we live our Christian life, we should pursue the practice of both setting our hearts, what we desire as on heaven, and setting our minds, our wills, reorienting our priorities, what we think about, how we view life according to the reality of heaven and heavenly priorities. So, so how can we do that? Like practically speaking, how can we set our hearts and our minds on things above? Well, again, I, I turn to, to Alcorn in his book, and I think he has some, some helpful suggestions. So he says this. He says, setting our minds on heaven is a discipline that needs to be learned. Ask yourself these questions. And I think these are helpful, not only questions to ask ourselves, but helpful, a helpful way to, to kind of train ourselves to, to set our mind on heaven. Number one, he says, do I daily reflect on my own mortality? I don't know about you, but I don't do that very much. Daily reflect on the fact that I am not living forever. Number two, do I daily realize that there are only two destinations, heaven or hell, and that I and every person that I know will go to one or the other? I think if we just set our mind on that reality, that would change how we live and what we share. Number three, do I daily remind myself that this world is not my home? And that everything in it will burn, leaving behind only what's eternal. We'll talk about that in our few minutes to come. Number four, do I daily recognize that my choices and my actions have a direct influence on the world to come? Chew on that. That what we do, what we say, what we think, how we act 
to some degree, will echo into eternity. Number five, do I daily realize that my life is being examined by God, the audience of one, and that the only appraisal of my life that will ultimately matter is his? I think most of us think more about what other people think about us than what God thinks about us. So these are five ways, I think, that we can begin to set our hearts and set our minds on things above. So first of all, the reality of heaven, it should impact what we desire and what we think. But secondly, we find in John 14, and so if you're flipping in your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. In John 14, I think we find a a second way that heaven and the reality of heaven should impact our lives today. John chapter 14, I think, tells us this. It gives us hope. It should give us hope when our hearts are troubled. It gives, tr- it gives hope to troubled hearts, the reality of heaven. I don't know where you are this morning or where you're coming from. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I think that the reality of life in general is that things happen that cause our hearts to hurt. Uh, we live in a fallen world. We're not yet in heaven. And so there is heartache and trouble in Jesus in John 14. He's going to talk to his disciples and he's going to talk about heaven, how it can help solve our heartaches. I want to begin with a, a quick story. Uh, about a month or two ago, my family and I were able to, to go down and spend a week in Florida. And uh, it was lovely. It was beautiful. We had a wonderful time. And one of the things that we did uh, that I really enjoyed was we, we, we took one night to go to kind of a nicer restaurant. And of course, we got to go to a seafood restaurant. And if you know anything about me, I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Texas. And uh, I would literally, uh, on occasion, go and get the shrimp right off the boat. So I'm kind of a seafood snob, and so I'm in Florida, and I'm like, yes, wonderful, fresh seafood. And we had a wonderful time, and we chose this restaurant. And I'm going to show a picture uh, of, of the aquarium in that restaurant. Uh, it's kind of hard to see. You kind of see uh, the bar area. But then to the left was this magnificent aquarium. And this little sliver is about maybe uh, a fourth, probably not even that, maybe an eighth of the entire aquarium. So you walked into the restaurant, and right in front of you in this waiting area, and essentially right in the middle of the restaurant was a huge aquarium that kind of wrapped around the entire uh, restaurant. So regardless of where you, where you sat, you could see the beautiful exotic fish swimming in this uh, man-made home for them, this aquarium. It was, it was wonderful and beautiful, and it helped uh, entertain the kids for a while, so that was good too, right? Um, but I, as, I, as I was there, and just in awe of the beauty of this fish fish aquarium. It was the best I've ever seen, I think. I kind of had to wonder, you know, as nice, as nice as that tank was, as nice as the aquarium was, I wondered if the fish instinctively knew that it wasn't the ocean, that it, it, it wasn't their home, that it was good and really nice, but it's just not their home. And then I began to wonder, the thought crossed my mind, I wonder as Christians in particular living in America, we, we have a pretty nice life for the most part. And I wondered that as nice as our fish tank is here in America, I wonder if we also realize that this is not our home either. The Bible tells us that this is not our home. Peter says that we are aliens and strangers, right? This is, we're just foreigners. We're just passing by. And Jesus uses this truth. He uses this image of heaven as our true home to bring hope 
to troubled hearts, particularly to the troubled hearts of his disciples. So let's read now in John 14, verses 1 through 6. Jesus comforts his disciples. They're in the upper room. It's the night of his arrest. There is much uncertainty. He has said, I'm leaving you. You can't go with me, right? And, and they're confused and they're scared. And Jesus speaks of the certainty of heaven as our home to give hope to troubled hearts. Verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. Notice the imagery of a home. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. I love doubting Thomas here, right? Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And of course, in verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus here, he speaks to his troubled disciples. And he says, you can have hope. It's difficult. It's hard. You're confused. Your hearts are troubled, but I want to comfort you. I want to comfort you, and I want to give you hope. And that hope is the certainty of our eternal home. Again, Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, says this about biblical optimism. And and I love what he has to say about this. He says, if we build our lives on the redemptive work of Christ, we should all be optimists. Why? Because even our most painful experience in life is but a temporary setback. Our pain and suffering may or may not be relieved in this life, but they will certainly be relieved in the next. That is Christ's promise. No more death or pain. He will wipe away all of our tears. He took our sufferings on himself so that one day he might remove all suffering from us. That is the biblical foundation of our optimism. Our optimism is not that of the health and wealth gospel, which claims that God will spare us of suffering here and now. Anticipating heaven doesn't eliminate pain, but it lessens it and it puts it in perspective. Meditating on heaven is a great pain reliever. I love that last line. Meditating on heaven is a great pain reliever. So how how does heaven, how should it affect us? Well, it should change our our desires and our, our thoughts. It should give us hope when our hearts are troubled. And then thirdly, it should motivate us to godly behavior. We see this in 2 Peter chapter 3. And so if you're in your Bibles, flip there. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Peter gives a very clear connection, a very clear link between our present behavior that is in line with God's standards and the certainty of heaven. He makes it unmistakably clear. It should motivate godly behavior here and now. So let's read it. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 14 says this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. We talked about this reality last week. So he's speaking of the destruction of the old earth and the recreation of the new. How should that affect here and now? Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's an application question, right? If this is true and it's going to happen, how should it affect what kind of people we are now? Well, he answers. He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in a heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Now notice, what, what does Peter say about our eternity? The new heaven and the new earth. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where what? Righteousness dwells. Where righteousness dwells. Your translation may even say, a, call it the home of righteousness. Verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, what should we do? How should it affect our life? Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So here, Peter says, listen, the character of our future destination, this new heaven and this new earth, he calls it the home of righteousness, the character of what will be our eternity should motivate us towards righteous behavior here and now that is in line with that future destination. O'Brien says it this way. He says, since the new heavens and the new earth will be a home of righteousness, we ought to be, quote, making ourselves at home here and now. Did you catch that? If that's going to be our home, then we should make ourselves at home here and now. One other commentator says that godly behavior is, quote, getting a head start on heaven. I really like that. Living godly, righteous lives now is just getting a start on heaven. So here's an example that I thought of, and I hope it's more helpful than harmful, but here it goes. So let's just say that every time you drove to the gym, and let's say you had to drive a while, like not to Creekside, okay, because it's a mile or two. Let's say you're driving somewhere to the gym, several miles, and along the way you pass uh, many fast food chains. So whichever fast food is your favorite, pick it. Let's say there's McDonald's or Taco Bell or KFC or whatever, whatever you like, right? There's, there's enticing fast food restaurants along the way, along the route to your gym, to where you're going to get exercise and you're going to lose that extra few pounds, right? And you're going to get in shape. That's what you want to do. But along the way, there are fast food restaurants. Would it make any sense at all if every time you go to the gym, you stopped at McDonald's and you stopped at Burger King and you stopped at Dairy Queen, and you stopped at KFC, and okay, keep going, right? Would it make any sense at all that, that, that if on the way, on the road to the gym, you stopped and you ordered food from every restaurant? And the answer church is what? No, that wouldn't make any sense at all, because your behavior on the way is incongruent, right? It's, it's not towards the end that you have in mind, because when you go to the gym, you want to get fit. You want to get 
healthy, right? And so those two things just don't fit. And I think what Peter is trying to say here is, listen, if we live ungodly lives and if we pursue selfish means and if we pursue sin and indulging ourselves on our destiny and, and our, our destination is heaven and it's holy and godly, then why would you eat spiritual fast food on the way there? Because that's where you're going. It makes no sense at all. And so it motivates us to godly behavior. Number four, there's a fourth thing, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. The fourth way that living in light of heaven should affect us now is that it, it should encourage us to serve in a way that is worthy of reward. That is, we should serve Christ and his ends in his church and people around us in a way that is worthy of rewards. We turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just to give you a little context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul has been talking to this church, the Corinthians, and he's talking about both his ministry and a guy by the name of Apollos, his ministry to the church. He's talking about how they have served them and brought the gospel to them, right? And he likens both his ministry and Apollos' ministry to that of building a house. So he says, listen, we are like spiritual builders and you are the house. Your life is the house and we're building. And he says, we build on a foundation that is your faith in Jesus. That is the, the Corinthians, their faith in Jesus when they come to repent of their sins and to trust in him then they, they're born again. And he says, that's the foundation of your spiritual house, but we are coming alongside you and we're building on your spiritual house, right? We're building on it. So notice what he says then of how we can choose to serve God, how we can choose to serve in a way worthy of rewards. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. Paul says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So here's the picture. He's saying that in our service to God as Christians, in the multitude of ways that we do that, we can do it in such a way that it will last into eternity and we will be rewarded for that, or we can do it in such a way that it would be burned off in the judgment and we will not receive rewards. We will lose rewards according to how we serve God. The quality. Notice the first three items, right? They last, they endure. Gold, silver, costly stones. And the last three don't. Wood, hay, or straw. What he says is, is simply this, that our acts of service to God will either endure, have an enduring quality like those first things, and will be rewarded, or it will not like hay, wood, and straw, and it will be burned up. I want to show you a clip. Uh, it's from the movie Gladiator. It's several years old, and uh, it's the opening scene of the movie. And uh, we'll just watch a little bit uh, of the opening scene. And in the opening scene, the, the captain of the guard, his name is Maximus, he's 
preparing his folks for battle, right? They're about to take on the the German barbarians, and he's readying them. He uh, stirs them, and then he gives a, a small speech. And in that small speech, there's a line. And in that line, before the battle, he speaks of the eternal echo of our deeds. Let's watch this together. Strength and honor. Strength and honor. Strength and honor. At my signal, unleash hell. think he meant by uh, what we do in life echoes into eternity uh, means a little different than what Paul is saying here. I think he hits on a, an important truth. And I think if Paul were to borrow the line, he would say, brothers, how we serve God and how we serve others in life echoes into eternity. I like what Bruce Milne says. He speaks of our, the eternal character and nature of serving God if done well. He says, every kingdom work, every kingdom work, whether publicly performed or privately endeavored, partakes of the kingdom's imperishable character. Notice, every honest intention, every stumbling word of of witness, every resistance of temptation, every motion of repentance, every gesture of concern, every routine engagement, every every motion of, of worship and every struggle towards obedience, every mumbled prayer, everything, literally everything which flows out of our faith relationship with God will find its place in the ever living heavenly order which will dawn at his coming. And so, number four, why should it matter? Well, we sh- it should encourage us the reality of heaven 
to serve God and to serve others in a way that is worthy of reward. We want our works here on earth to endure into eternity. Finally, number five. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, at the very end of a long chapter, full of lots of theology, gives us this wonderful little nugget, and it gives the fifth way that living in light of eternity, how it should affect our life, number five, it should lead to perseverance. When we live in light of heaven, we should persevere in our faith. In verses 1 through 34 of chapter 15, Paul has defended the resurrection of Jesus. He says this is real, it's literal, and he defends it in all sorts of ways. He defends the resurrection of Christ. And then in verses 35 through 49, what he does is he speaks of our resurrected bodies. And he says, our resurrected bodies will be like Jesus' resurrected bodies. And then finally, in verses 50 through 57, he speaks of how we will be raised up when Jesus comes back. So he spent 57 verses on eternity, so to speak, on the fact that Jesus is risen and we too will be risen from the dead. He's, he's spoken of the reality of eternity. And then to end the chapter, there's just little verse But he says, so what? What does that matter? Like, how should that affect what we do now? And he gives us this little verse in verse 58. He says, therefore, there's the tie, right? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So all of this talk, here's the future. What does it matter? Listen, keep standing firm in your faith. Whatever comes your way, whatever temptation, whatever trial, whatever suffering, whatever hardship, let none of it move you. Let none of it move you. Always give yourself to the work of the Lord. Always serve him in a multitude of ways because you know because of our resurrected body, it will not be in vain. Whatever we do here, however we serve the Lord, and there are myriads of, myriads of ways that we can do that, we should never think that it's done in vain, that it won't be noticed, that it won't be rewarded. He says our labor and our faith, persevering, it is never in vain. I want to close with a story that I found to be interesting and inspiring. There was a, a young woman whose name was Florence Chadwick. And in 1952, she stepped into the cold waters of the Pacific Ocean, just off the Catalina Islands, and she was determined, her goal was to swim all the way then back to the shores of California. Now, she had already uh, been successful in something like this. She was the first woman to ever swim the English Channel both ways. So this was her next, her next feat. The weather that day was foggy, it was very cold. She could barely see the multitude of boats that were around her, keeping her company as she was swimming. History tells us that she swam for 15 hours. Towards the end, she begged to be taken out of the waters. She was mentally, physically, spiritually. She was exhausted in every way, but her mother was in a, a boat nearby coaching her, encouraging her, telling her that it was close, that the end was near, that she could, she could make it if she would just persevere. Finally, it caught up with her, and she gave in. And so she was pulled into the boat, and it wasn't until that she was on the boat that she discovered that the shore 
was less than half a mile away. And afterwards, at the news conference, they interviewed her and asked her all sorts of questions. And she made this statement, and I'll quote. She said, all I could see was the fog. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Friends, my prayer is that our series on heaven that we've been in for these last several weeks would help us to see the shore of eternity a little bit clearer through the fog of life and encourage us to just keep swimming. We'll make it by God's grace. Let's pray as we prepare for communion together. Father, thank you that the hope of heaven is certain and sure for those of us who are Christians. If we've repented of trusting in ourselves and any good work that we have ever or could ever do to earn favor and eternity and heaven with you, we renounce all of that. Christ and his life and his death and resurrection is the only thing that is sufficient for us to be in heaven and to give us hope of eternity. And we thank you that that hope is not just something that lingers in the future, but that it impacts our today. And we want to remember now as we prepare to share these elements of the Lord's Supper, as we prepare our hearts to partake in the bread, and as we tear the bread, we remember that the the body of your Son was torn asunder for our sins. And as we prepare to to dip that in in this this juice, we are reminded by the color and the consistency that, that your Son shed his very blood for us. And it's only because he did that that we can have the assurance of heaven. It's only because he died on the cross for our sins and rose again that we can live in light of a certain heaven because he went before us and because he and he alone is sufficient for that. Father, I pray if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, if there's someone here and they are not sure that their eternity will be in heaven if they are resting their confidence in their good works, in their church attendance, in their morality, in being better than their neighbor or anything else, may they know that that is a vain and fleeting hope and that they will end up in hell because those who are in heaven trust sufficient, only in what Christ has done and the sufficiency of his sacrifice. May they now, even in this moment, repent of their self-righteousness, repent of their self-centeredness, repent of all of their sin, and come and accept a free gift that is absolutely free and cost Jesus everything. And may they receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, salvation, a right relationship with you, and may they be born again through their faith in Jesus. For the rest of us who come to the table, Father, may we examine our hearts May we not take it lightly. May we um, spend moments in prayer to examine our own hearts and lives. And may we come to the table full of joy, thanksgiving, and gratitude for what Christ has done. May we remember. May we remember what he's done and the implications of what it means for us now in the light of eternity. So friends, take a minute. Pray. Repent. Examine your hearts. And if you uh, profess faith in Christ and Christ alone, then you are welcome at our table to partake of the elements and then feel free to go when you're done.